Welcome to Raw the Podcast with Amy and Grecian, where we talk real and raw with mamas who have had to fight and be fierce, who have been thrown curveballs and faced adversity. We discuss everything from premature birth and NICU life, special needs and infant loss, to those everyday mum life struggles we all feel. Nothing is off topic. We hope that by opening up and being vulnerable, we can break down the walls and start to remove some of the shame and stigma associated with these traumatic experiences while helping other mamas feel less alone. I'm Amy, special needs and medical mama to Premier Boys James and Jack. I'm the founder of my own small business and support network, Miracle Mama, where I advocate fiercely for the infertility, Premier and special needs community. And I'm Grecian, mama of four girls, including two full-termers, Adeline and Macy, and a set of Premier twins, Hannah and Riley, born at 25 weeks. I'm an IVF warrior and am passionate about sharing the unfiltered ups and downs of motherhood. We don't share your average mama stories, and this isn't your average podcast. Raw is unrefined and breaks through the bullshit of navigating guilt, grief, and trauma. I mean, let's be honest, we've been through more shit than some could even imagine, so at this point we don't really have a filter. But with this being said, please note we do talk about sensitive topics in our episodes, which we know can be distressing. We give this warning simply to empower you, our audience, with the knowledge you need to make healthy decisions about how and if you should consume this podcast content. Please take care of yourselves and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. And lastly, let us assure you that it's not all bad and sad. It's a place to have real and raw conversations. Ask those questions that may be playing on your mind. And above all, we hope to shine a light on the life-changing perspective and appreciation that only these experiences can give you. We share the overwhelming joys and triumphs that our little miracles bring to our lives. And we discuss the inspiration and hope we have gained from this community. While our experiences are individually unique, we are forever a part of something truly special, a community of fierce mama bears and their cubs navigating the storm, and together we'll roar. Welcome, Roarers. Hey, Grecian. Hi. (laughs) We're keeping the intro short and sweet this week as we are chatting to another guest, Georgie, who is the mama to three-year-old Eve and eight-month-old Jack. Sweet Eve is one in a million. She has an incurable rare genetic lung and heart disease, the only one in Australia. Eve is on oxygen 24-7 and has been since birth, and a simple cold generally ends up in an ICU stay. Yeah. Georgie talks about the unknowns of Eve's conditions and the realities of not having a proper diagnosis for your child. We asked Georgie about the ins and outs of having an older child on oxygen and how she advocates for Eve both medically and socially. She has some great tips and tricks on these topics. We also talk about their decision to have another child after Eve and their recent stay in ICU with both of their babies due to the dreaded RSV. Yeah, Georgie was a wealth of knowledge. She's certainly touched on many aspects that we haven't yet here which is great Um, the one thing I noticed about Georgie above all was that she has a real genuine and infectious positivity so she always looks on the bright side and she has so much love and respect for everything and everyone despite everything they've been through I just love how she speaks about Eve and our little ones with additional needs with so much joy all right let's get into the episode hey Georgie gosh we are so excited to have you here We've been chatting back and forth since we first started the pod and you've given us some beautiful feedback along the way. I'll actually never forget your first message that popped into our inbox that finished with, I've been looking for a podcast like yours for ages, so glad I found it. 
I'm totally fangirling because it's so true. I've um, had this journey of being a medical mum and I feel like now I found my tribe with you guys. So it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so obviously you're deep in the medical world um, with your now three-year-old daughter, Eve, and it can be so lonely. So we're so glad you found us too. Can you tell us about Eve's diagnosis? Yeah. So I have a beautiful little girl. She's three. Her name's Eve. And um, I had a super normal, uneventful pregnancy. And um, even even birth was really normal um, and amazing. But at birth, Eve had respiratory failure, which was essentially she came out grey and she oh. didn't kind of turn the pink very quickly I think it's the APGAR test that she mm-hmm. she failed quite quickly. Um, and so she was taken away within a few minutes, lots of rubbing, lots of oxygen, um, no kind of stress in the room at that point. She was taken out of the room. The first time I saw her, um, I don't – you kind of lose sense of time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was that long after um, she was born, but she had a – uh, she was ventilated, covered with probes, um, had a chest drain, and we kind of started this journey in the NICU uh, f- at the Royal Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. We were there for a few months, and I'm saying all this because it took a really long time to get any kind of diagnosis, mm-hmm. and we still don't really have a clear one. But yeah. it came out at about um, eight weeks when she had a CT scan that she had this really unclear um, chest x-ray and it was diagnosed as a thing called interstitial lung disease okay. which is a really broad term for lung disease it could be many of a lot of different things so it's and like an umbrella of, kind of thing that covers yeah a range of lung issues heaps of different lung issues it's like saying you've got cancer but not really mm-hmm. elaborating on what type or where or what system it's affecting and then for a few months later down the track, um, when we went back to hospital, she um, showed pulmonary hypertension, mm-hmm. which is um, an imbalance of pressures in her heart. So they're the two ones that we're rolling with at the moment. She later had genetic testing. Um, we found a gene change, which also didn't really mean much because mm. it wasn't categorised as um, something that could kind of lead to these two diseases until just recently, just this year. So it's kind of been upgraded to be pathogenically likely is the terminology. So that's where, yeah, we're at with all of those medical terms, Mm -hmm. the lungs, the heart and the genetics. Yeah. So there's no real, real specific diagnosis yet. There's just an umbrella of things not pinpointing not pinpointing so it's very difficult therefore to know what kind of proven treatments to go down what kind of track so in the beginning we kind of just throw all of the treatments at her and see what sticks Mm -hmm. and thankfully a couple of medications and oxygen um, has been really great for her and she's remained stable for a little time now um and yeah, it's 
really tricky because <laughs> we're kind of going in blind of what that means for her future, um, what that means for the progression of her disease. It's really, really unsure. What And what does that look like for her now? So what... Uh, like what what does it mostly affect for her now that she's three? What sort of complications have you had with that over the years? So it looks like for her um, oxygen 24-7, that's a really tricky one for people to kind of understand how do you have a child on oxygen like attached to a cord 24-7. It's, um, there's an oxygen tank, if you can imagine a scuba diving tank, yep. a 15-metre cord and it's attached prongs that are taped to her face or like every day or 24 hours a day since the day she was born and so it affects her like logistically it affects her and therefore like her movement um although she's quite good she can be a little clumsy she can get very very puffed quite quickly so she'd need to be picked up while we're walking Mm -hmm. um she will go downhill in a flash if she gets kind of any respiratory virus. So it was like the very worst time I feel like in history to have a kid with a respiratory virus mm. the last few years yeah. with our yeah. pandemic. And then it's like the second wave of the pandemic with everything that's been going around this winter. Yeah. Um, and there's a, definitely a lot of medical trauma and anxiety, mm. behavioural um, kind of often upset um, from all the experiences that she's had in and out of hospital. Yeah. Is she on high flow oxygen? That's she's what on I was going to ask. Yeah. On high flow when whenever she gets sick. So we if we go to the hospital, that's mm-hmm. all, often what happens in ED straight away. We go to high flow. Yeah. Um, but as you probably notice, she wears those little yeah. um, we, uh, OptiFlow props. Yeah, yeah. That's, so that's what made me question it, yeah. <laughs> they look like the high flow prongs and that's because at night time we used to have the AirVo, which is like a humidifying yeah. device for the oxygen. It makes it a little bit moister, um, but we don't have that. But we just love the prongs because they're yeah. so easy to put on and off. Yeah. Don't like hurt her skin. So yeah. we found them to be really good. And when you were saying about... Um, you know, it's unusual for people to understand what's hard for people to understand her being on oxygen 24 seven. I think that also comes with her being three. So you don't often see an older child, um, on oxygen 24 hours a day. Um, yeah, it's, you know, we, we frequently see babies with oxygen, but yeah, to be longer term at that age, it's a bit, bit more rare, I think. Yeah. I think, a few things is what we often, like if we meet someone in the park, they'll often ask, was she prem? Mm-hmm. So it is related very much to prematurity and she was not prem. She was like 41, 3.1 kilos, the mm. biggest baby in NICU, <laughs> not prem at all. And you're right, it's often an aged care um, sort of oxygen setup, and that's really tricky for her because all of the devices that we have are so clunky Mm, and huge and heavy and they're not really designed to be mobile because often Mm. somebody in aged care would have it in aged care home and have it Mm. kind of in one place um the tank or the concentrator and move around from that so i don't know i often feel like writing to nasa to like design some portable (laughs) oxygen um you would think there would be something yeah. You know, well, they 
to do some crazy stuff with oxygen in space. So I feel like yeah. they, they need to do it on Earth for these little kids because yeah. it's, it's now we're coming up to her going to school soon. She's three, maybe not not next year, but soon. Those sort of um, logistical things and how to make that experience really smooth and streamlined for her really is quite overwhelming mm-hmm. because I haven't seen it either. I don't no. have any friends of kids on oxygen. You're right, it's really rare. Yeah. Um, so since being a part of this sort of online medical community, I've come to know quite a few people with rare genetic conditions and that overarching feeling from these mothers is sort of one of uncertainty, like a heaviness of not knowing or having any specifics mm. about your child's condition. So how has this been mm. for you? Um, I would say... There are periods of really of it's sort of the grief or the unknown comes in waves, and there's periods of really um, heaviness around what the future might be. And you might mm-hmm. have had a really kind of trying day with the kids. You might be tired and then go to bed at night and just worry and think and get really upset and cry a lot. And it's never sort of at the forefront of my mind during the day because you've you're busy distracted being a mum yeah. right it's just going through the motions and I think sometimes that's it's probably your mind's way of trying not to think about it until you stop and then when you yeah <laughs> until you stop and you have a moment and it it's it's so incredibly scary to think that you what I think about is that your child might pass away before you that's mm. kind of where my head goes sometimes that's gonna make me because tear up <laughs> that's I know because I mean that's essentially what we're that's talking the reality about like of what you're dealing with what is the mortality of your child um and you kind of go think about what might you say to them if it ever happened or if it was getting closer to that point and you, you can just go down this awful and it, it's not, um, I guess it's therapeutic potentially in a way to be able to release that and express that in your own safety of like you might talk to your family mm-hmm. or if it's me I just kind of um, might cry in my bed at night and then the next day I'm up and I'm ready to go and I it's not at the forefront of my mind at all. Yeah. But um it's a it's a it's a heavy thing to carry and it can come out in really tricky um, sort of outbursts of frustration mm. um, as well in trying to manage other relationships like your marriage or your family relationships or your friends there's just kind of a really um, no one will get it no. until you're in that space. Mm-hmm. And because you'd have really no statistics or, you know, specifics about her condition. So, like, you just, I guess, is there a lot of just wait and see and they can't really give you any information on, yeah, it must be so hard. Yeah, they they can't give you any idea of really what the future can look like. The very first article that was published about Eve's condition was in 2019. And that was the year she was born. Mm. And I remember like looking at that 
article and reading it and you know when you read medical articles and they're full of this language that is just so far over your head you don't really understand Mm -hmm. but I was so excited there was something about this TBX4 gene mutation Mm -hmm. and so I think actually since 2019 when we found a group on Facebook of 18 people with this gene mutation um, they found us through some crazy um, article on online. I don't know how they found us. I love Facebook for that. (laughs) But since then, the group has grown to 70 people in, in what's that, less than three years. So we, we still don't yet, you're right, we don't have any sort of stats. And when you read an article on such a small cohort of kids, the stats of anything are really bad because mm-hmm. it's you're looking at a experiment on 10 children and you know if three have really bad results then that's going to high, really upset yeah. you so i don't i don't really try to look too much into that but um what we often have this overwhelming sense with eve because she day-to-day is so incredibly joyful and happy and full of sass and sort of if you took the oxygen off her she would run around and play and and appear like a normal Mm -hmm. toddler we just have this sense she will be okay on or off oxygen we feel like she's handling it and um I think if you're ever worried about your your kid and how they're going to kind of present down the track you just got to focus on what you see in the moment and generally in the moment she's really bloody loving life that's a beautiful way to put it like to think yeah. about it even even when she's very unwell with a virus she does get through it um she needs help with high flow and going to the hospital in the moment it's really scary but we get through it and we're almost like wow i'm like you're so proud of them Mm. for getting this common cold that knocks them down and then they just you know get back up again leave hospital the last time we left hospital she said to me um out the door gosh mum that was so fun (laughs) walking out like Eve you did not look like you were having fun (laughs) the last two weeks and you weren't having fun no no one was having fun (laughs) But I guess you can't let it consume you either. Hey, like that's the, you know, you live this day in, day out. You can't, you could get to a point of really letting it take over if you didn't live in the moment. Yeah. And that's, what's really cool about little kids is like, they don't let you, they don't let it consume you because they need you so much, like in the moment to like wipe their bum or play with their toys or chase them. So you kind of can't. Yeah. And I don't know how, because it's pretty, it's pretty awful when it's on paper, but you just, it just doesn't kind of happen. Because they're like so that. innocent and they don't, they don't see all of that, do they? All the bad stuff. They just see the beauty of life. Yeah. And I know you guys would relate to this too. Like if, if you saw an adult kind of with the diagnosis or the health sort of journey that your child has, they would be complaining and 100%. really sad mm. and frustrated letting everybody know that whinge and these little kids they might you know a little bit but they get up and they 
get on with it and they're so incredibly resilient and joyful and so that's what I often see and generally um any any little kid with needs I look at them like you're such a champion to be doing this what you're doing day in day out yeah so true but I want to know more about the oxygen yeah so do you adjust like do you monitor her sets and things like that like is she on a monitor overnight when she sleeps? Is is she on one twenty four seven? Because I've seen um, yeah. one baby that's actually at Addie's school. It's obviously a sibling, but he was on oxygen twenty four seven, and he had the SATS monitor with them in the pram and things like that. So I wondered, yeah, do you keep an eye on yeah. that? Obviously, so you know if you can adjust it. Does the hospital have to adjust it? Like if she is getting sick, like I'd love to know the logistics yeah. more about that. Yeah, this is, and this is, I'm part of a few Facebook groups of Aussie oxygen kids and I notice the anxiety and the questions of mums who have just taken their oxygen baby home and that that was really a massive steep learning curve and very overwhelming in the beginning but we are generally, like oxygen something I feel from our experience, we've become quite competent quite quickly because it's the same thing every day. But in the beginning, um, the, we would she would be on oxygen 24-7 and she would have a SATS monitor year, overnight. Mm-hmm. And that's because little babies um, will rub their cheeks and, like, their little prongs will flick on their nose. Yes, they'll come out. Or they'll pull it off. Rally used to do um, that with her prongs with their <laughs> love to dream swaddles, swash it out. I'm like, oh, yes. okay, yep, yep, mm-hmm. need to put those back in, thanks. I reckon oxygen mums would have tried every single swaddle technique Mm -hmm. device on the planet. To stick them down, like to make sure they stay one way and they'll still get them out somehow. Yeah, and obviously when that happens, their little SATS monitor will beep, beep, beep. So um, that was not fun for zero to one. There was a Mm -hmm. lot of beeping and a lot of – and nothing was wrong. We just have to go and um, put the prongs back back in. Yeah. the other thing that you kind of start noticing as your baby grows is like noticing their signs of if their oxygen needs to be turned up. So they might be a little dusky or they might be worker breathing a little more. And I think we we almost don't need the SATS monitor. It's more there for a confirmation now of what we already um, notice. Yeah, yep. And we really are in tune with That's if amazing. she's going downhill, her breathing, her colour her energy levels, her irritability, and we put on the SATS monitor. And it um, just confirms what you've yeah, Confirms what seen. we know. But I will say if if you do have an, a kid on oxygen, I love the SATS monitors from the hospital mm-hmm. that we hire from the hospital rather than like an owlet or something else. That's often a conversation I've had with medical mums, like which one's the most reliable, and it's such a good safety net for us. I love that machine. Yep. So you've still got one. You've still got one now, obviously, for when you yes. need it. Yes, we still have one. And, you know, I even use it on Jack if I'm yeah. worried. Or like my friend the other night, it's croup. Everyone's got croup. Yep. And I'm like, do you want my machine? You <laughs> can borrow it for the night. <laughs> That's it. Um, they're really good. Um, we just had one donated to us by the MAD Foundation which is an amazing charity, um, they they donated it so we don't have to hire it anymore. Wow. Um, which is incredible if if 
medical mum community, go approach some charities if you do need pieces of equipment and you'll be really impressed with how amazing their their support can be. But, yeah, that's been something we use all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the best part about the hospital um, monitors is the hospital will believe you <laughs> if you say that you've got one. We're yeah. in the, with an outlet yeah. that most of the staff at the hospital just go, no, we don't They question them. it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's what they've done with us when yeah. we've taken, we took Riley in. And I'm like, no, yeah. I've got it on my phone. I've got, like, she did yes. drop, like, because we didn't get sent one yeah. when she came home on, home on oxygen. We just had the outlet, so we only had that to go by. But, like, if yeah. we didn't have that, we wouldn't have Riley here today. Like, wow. so, like, at least it was something, yeah. definitely. It's really interesting that, when you're going when you're going home for the first time from the NICU because we didn't get an oxygen monitor either and we went back two months later and suddenly Eve's requirements went from 0.1 litre to one litre wow. in two months. So something pretty bad happened in those two months and had we have had that machine, we would have picked that up. Sooner. You know, yeah. sooner. So, mm. yes, in hindsight, if I'd known, I would have gone home with one and I think it's a reasonable request if you're worried yeah do you have any sort of tips and tricks for oxygen mums in terms of I guess the logistic side of it so going out and about you know all the practical stuff anything that you use that makes your life a bit easier I know you said you've got all the clunky equipment so probably not but um yeah anything that you can think of that might help other parents yeah, tips for oxygen going out and about. <laughs> um, try not to. No. Um, yeah. We do a pretty good job. <laughs> um, we do a pretty good job of trying to go everywhere we would as if as if we didn't do oxygen. I think when people see us on our Instagram doing activities, they're like, wow, it doesn't really change what you do. And it, it honestly doesn't. Um, one... That, so your pram really matters because you need a pram that has a decent basket to hold the weight of the tank. Um, we have the City Select Baby Jogger and I really love that pram basket. It really holds it well. Um, we, we also have a little kit of all the extra oxygen supplies, so the prongs, the wiggle pads, an extra cord. And that was because we went to a farm once with Eve and we were feeding the goats, and the goat ate through her oxygen cord. Oh, my God. And we didn't have a spare one. Seriously, a goat. Yeah, seriously, a goat. We were at, like, um, a friend's farm feeding the goat. She was having such a good time. Um, but we had to race home. So you don't, like, with it, and with a toddler racing anywhere, you can't really do much mm-hmm. quick. So you do need, like, a spare set of things. Um yeah. Just in case. Just in case a goat is around. <laughs> <laughs> a goat, yeah. Um, we we also like obviously going to the park with Eve. She's on, I'm carrying the tank. So you just, we're going under the slides with her, like under the kind of boat park tunnels and um up and down the equipment and it's kind of fun like you get to kind of be back a kid again apart from if you're pregnant Mm. that's not fun oh Um, yeah no your steps though you would do like way over ten thousand steps then if you're carrying 
that around if you're out and about. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and um, I need I need some surgery on my shoulder. I reckon from carrying oxygen. a baby and an oxygen tank. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't I don't I don't think I had many tips there. But just I would just encourage people you you can do it. It's just a little heavier. You just have to be super organized. That's one thing that um, with your core group of friends to communicate to them is like you can't do stuff quickly. If you're invited mm-hmm. to just pop down to the park, we don't really pop out anywhere quickly. Mm-hmm. It would take at least, you know, 30 to 45 minutes just to gather all the get organized all the stuff, and- get organized and just having, you know, your family and friends understand you're going to need a little bit more time and grace with things like that. And sometimes, you know, you can't, so it's nicer for them to come to your house because everything's there and it's stationed there. And um, that would probably be a really nice, a nice thing for everybody to know and a good tip to be able to tell them. And I wouldn't probably push yourself to try to go to the other side of the town to go to a park where there's like lots of hills and, play equipment where you're going to go under and up and just sort of take a scope of the play spaces that you want to go to those indoor play spaces what are they called like um oh the jungle gym type things yeah jungle gym king kindy gym type they're not Mm. they're not great um that's a great tip about for family and friends as well like something like obviously Grecian and I can relate to as well with tube feeding I've Mm. you know that's something we haven't really touched on in the podcast is Mm. like yeah letting your family and friends know that things are going to take a lot more time and it's not easy to just pop out and Mm. yeah you know just having that understanding and having some grace around that because I think sometimes I feel like this pressure mm. and I'm like constantly rush, rush, mm. rush, rush, trying to meet everyone else's schedule where if you just, you just wish that they would, you know, allow you on a little bit more time and understanding around all of that. Yeah. That's a good point. Even just having a conversation about that with people, because it's something, you know, they don't know until you tell them. Yeah. And they, um, like the invitations to where you go are important. Or if you were to go to someone's house, it doesn't, work very well if you go and there's toys spread out everywhere because that's just like tripping hazards for a cord Mm. to get caught on things and you want to try and make the experience for your kid as normal as possible and if they're getting caught and tripping on stuff they just get upset they're not going to have a good time you're not going to have a good time yeah yeah. even you know push the table right to the side if we're going somewhere where there's a coffee table doesn't need to be in the center of the room let's just push it out or yeah um and people are very accommodating if you just mention it and say do you know what can we just move this Mm -hmm. over while eve's here and we'll move it back when we leave um i think yeah i've taken a while to kind of have the confidence in my voice to like or the confidence to voice those type of things and i find 99 percent of the time people are really receptive I just I took a while to be able to say it because you're right you're just trying to make everybody else feel comfortable um Mm. but now I'm just I just let it (laughs) say 
say it how it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some birthday parties, so we can't go to. There's that place doesn't it's work for us. Yeah, too hard. And it's so good. It feels so good being able to say that, and everybody is really, really understanding. That's good. Surprisingly, liberating saying no sometimes. Yeah, I think, I think COVID kind of helped with that because we said a no to a lot of stuff, and we got better at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just here nodding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it probably made people more understanding too, hopefully, for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right, it did. Um even I was I was gonna say recently with a trip to ICU that we've had with this virus called RSV. Um just the sort of understanding of viruses and like what RSV is and how it can affect little kids and little babies has been has kind of just yeah blown up so much more than it had um, the exposure a couple of years ago um, that's that's a particular virus that can affect really well kids not just medical kids so yeah I think COVID has kind of opened the doors to to that side of of health for little people. Yeah, we actually really wanted to touch on your recent hospital stay. Um, it was you actually that suggested the topic for our previous episode, how to get through winter with a vulnerable child. And then, yeah, you ended up in ICU with both of your babies at the same time with, yeah, the dreaded RSV. Yeah. We were both following along and felt so deeply for you in this time. There was one heart-wrenching moment that I'll let you share um, which just Mm. tore our hearts to pieces but yeah talk us through Mm. this shitty time yes um so RSV was like has been the virus that's just haunted me since Eve was born because at the time she was born in the NICU RSV was everywhere in the NICU and it was making babies so incredibly unwell so I came out of that experience just knowing she could never get this virus because it's one that is really damaging to kids with lung disease it's a particular um, effect on the lungs is really scary and can lead to pneumonia very easily so i've been i feel like we've been avoiding this dreaded rsv for three years way longer more than covid and eve got covid in january and Mm. went to icu but she coped okay she's she got RSV in um August and went downhill like within the space of a few hours she was in um ED and she had a few pulmonary episodes and pulmonary attacks and that's kind of where they hyperventilate they they almost have a little bit of a fit their color goes incredibly dusky and pale and they need and their SATs at that time drop like dangerously low below 60s. 60s, if you want 100 is your ideal, down into the 60s is really dangerous, especially for a kid with heart disease. So she's put on high flow really um, urgently. And she had the highest amount of oxygen requirements since she'd been born. Um, so that was an indication of how, how bad it was. she was. Yeah. Um, and went straight up to the PICU, which is the paediatric ICU. And so at that time I was with Eve by my by myself 
and um, Sean was home with Jack and Jack had been coughing for like probably about a month, just this cough that just wouldn't go away. And he called me um, that um, the second night Eve was in ICU and was really worried. He'd called his parents and they had come over to his house as well to help like manage Jack because he was coughing, quite upset, not sleeping. And it came to a point where um, we asked the doctor in the PICU to just come out. I got Sean on FaceTime. Can you look at Jack Jack's chest? Mm. And she said straight away, no, bring him in. And he had he was really kind of um, you see you can see his ribs. He was his worker breathing was quite yeah. hard. You know and all the signs, all the signs. But it was interesting in that moment with Jack. Um, we had well, Sean was here with him. We'd never experienced that amount of um, difficulty breathing when Eve was a baby because okay. she was on. She was in the NICU. She was on the ventilator. We'd never gone home and she was struggling to breathe. Yeah. So it was, it, it was so scary seeing how old was he, six months, really struggling to breathe. And we kind of forgot all of the things we would normally do with Eve, like unzip his onesie and check. Because or, you weren't expecting it from nah, a full-term, hey, healthy, no, no, I don't want to yeah. say issues, but, yeah, no medical reasons yeah and we had all the stuff here that would help him like the oximeter to check his sats the oxygen which is what they do straight away we could have done all that but Sean was really really stressed so he went straight to Frankston hospital which is a hospital um closer and then was transferred to the royal children's because he was really sick and also Eve was there so they wanted to keep us together and we switched I was in ED with Jack um he was put on high flow there's really not a lot that they can give kids when they've got bronchiolitis apart from helping them through um their symptoms so the oxygen we thought okay we'll do this for a few days and leave but he he's just kept getting worse he's worker breathing kept getting worse he wasn't maintaining his sats and then um a nurse in the ed did the met call which is the red buzzer button in the room and that's that's indicating i need some help from some other doctors mm-hmm. um everyone would run in she said just yeah. so you know um everything is going to be okay but a lot of doctors are about to run into the room and we'll just be able to help Jack. What made them call that? What made her, like, his what was sats. the turning point? Yeah, okay. His sats just were not maintaining, like, yeah. the lo- low, below 90, getting well below 90. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. And very lethargic. So not really responding, like, not asleep but not responding. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was out of that whole experience even with eve as well i think that was the scariest moment for jacks to have that met call because it was so unexpected he looked like he was fading away and i'd done this three times four times with eve before so i knew i knew her signs i did not know anything 
of what Jack's limits were. Um, and thankfully, the most amazing doctor was on that night, who is the same doctor we've had so many times at the Royal Children's with Eve. So she had come down from the ICU and saw Jack and she was, I said to her, look, I think he's fading away. And she's like, yes, I think he's fading away. Um, we need to get him upstairs to the ICU. But they didn't have any beds. So we were in the um, in the ED with a few kind of calls to consultants to be able to have an extended amount of high flow. It was like three litres per kilo of body weight rather than two, which you've got to get special approval for. Um, and they were trying to rearrange some bed. She said it might happen at some point during the night and then I was just losing <laughs> my calm for sure when I was not wanting to stay in an ED room. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in the NICU, uh, in the ICU. There's something very comforting about being in the ICU with all of that support. Yeah. Um, Plus Eve was there as well. Plus Eve was there. That's right. So at this point I was texting Sean because he texts me to say, hey, babe, was that Jack's room? Because I heard the Met call over the PA, which goes through the whole, whole hospital, and I said, yeah, it was Jack. Um, so he was trying to text me to find out what was wrong. And the meanwhile this beautiful doctor came back within a few minutes and said, we've got a bed and it's opposite Eve. And she was amazing. She didn't want to tell me straight away because they were trying to um, kind of logistically figure it out. But we went straight up and, yeah, he had high flow, a drip. Um, they were the main things. Because there's not much else they can do besides, like you said, help their symptoms. Yeah. Give them the much support respiratory-wise as possible. That's right. And the reason they go up to ICU is the amount of the oxygen and um, the potential for needing more IV access. So that's why we had to um, go up. And obviously they've got more equipment there. If it goes from high amounts of oxygen to needing intubation, you're in that space. But yeah, I felt much better when we were in the ICU with Eve as well and he took he took a few days he was really really upset because um when you're on high flow you can't have milk like via bottle because you might aspirate so all he wanted for comfort was his bottle and I couldn't give it to him for mm -hmm. like three days he had a nasogastric tube and I think that's what upset him the most. He would just cry and cry and cry for his comfort. Yeah. I remember when Jack mm. was on high flow with RSV mm. when he was only eight weeks old and that was his biggest, I mean, he was very flat and lethargic and hardly woke up, but when he did, he was hungry. He was so hungry and he could smell mm. me and he was just like rooting mm. for the like milk. Yeah, it was awful. Yeah. It was so awful. And the point where he turned was when I gave him his bottle. I'm like, he yeah. had a bit of oxygen, but I just we just turned it down, and he and he went, he got better real really quick. <laughs> That's amazing. No, I'm just upset about the whole ICU having, yeah, two 
both of your children mm. in ICU, one that you would never expect yeah. to be there. And then obviously with Eve, just that, yeah, the one you've been waiting for, like you said, over COVID, that RSV mm. is just the shittest one for their poor mm. little lungs. I was going to say in, in terms of the ICU, it was um, it was almost better if they were going to be in hospital that they were in ICU opposite each other for logistically for us parents, like mm-hmm. it, being able to kind of swap and um, we, we hid kind of Jack. We closed the curtains from Eve for quite a few days because we knew if she knew he was there, she'd want to go in. And she couldn't because mm-hmm. she was hooked up to all of these apparatus that wouldn't be able to do that. But the fact that we were so close um, was testament to the children's for being able to like put us together made that experience so much better than what it could have been. It could have been way more traumatic yeah. than that. They did say um, the nurses like they don't often rarely really have two children from the same family in ICU at the same time um so everyone was very helpful yeah so what was your decision making process like for you guys in regards to having another child after Eve um so when we got pregnant with Jack at that point in terms of Eve's genetics um it was not classified as Um, it was called a variant of unknown significance, her genetic classification. So that could mean that we're highly suspicious this gene has caused her condition, but we're not sure. And what makes it kind of more complicated is I have the exact same genetic change that Eve has, but I present with none of the symptoms. Wow. Um, Which doesn't mean that I might not later but it's quite unlikely. But again, there's no research on it. Um, and the other, so also that means that there's a 50% chance of any future pregnancy from inheriting this gene change because I carry the same one. So our dilemma was if we were to have another pregnancy, there's a 50% chance that the baby will have the gene change, but it's not therefore 50% chance that they will express the same sort of severity of the gene. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like it's just chance. It it comes down to just chance. Um, And we did not know at that point when we got pregnant with Jack that the classification of the gene was upgraded to pathogenically likely, which means this gene does cause this in Eve. So we went with just a natural um, conception and we were considering IVF. However, when we did discuss with the IVF um, clinic, they said all these things to us. Like if we, um, there's, yeah, you're not guaranteed, even if you did have a, a normal pregnancy, that the baby would expressed the same way as Eve so I guess we we had a lot of faith that it would be okay it did not make the pregnancy very calm Mm. (laughs) I was pretty Mm. um anxious um about the birth because 
the afterbirth for Eve was um, so much intervention and a lot of traumatic trauma there. So we made a dis- pretty easy decision to be referred to Monash where there was a NICU just across the hallway. There was also um, NICU doctors in the room at the birth. And so what that meant, um, we, we decided along with the doctors that Jack would be observed like straight mm-hmm. after the birth. Um, so he was, was taken pretty quickly into the, the NICU just for observation and was there for about four days and didn't present with the same sort of symptoms as Eve. And we had a genetic test at that point too. That was another decision to make. Like, do we want to test Jack and, and know if he's a carrier or not? Um, I don't think we ever considered not testing him. We we thought that information would be better and it would be better for the community of the small community of people that have this gene. And it turns out he has the same gene change as Eve. He has yeah. just not expressed any of the symptoms oh, except for these little tiny bone changes in his feet. So you've got like kind of wonky little toes. <laughs> Or and um, wonky little patellas, which doesn't affect anything. I grew up with a lot of knee dislocations, which kind of makes sense because of now these it makes changes. Sense. Yeah, yep, on my patella. So, like, he has it and he's okay. I can't um, for future babies. Now we know that the gene causes the condition that Eve has. We have to kind of. I'm not sure if that would change our decision again. It's really hard because mm. Jack is Jack is really healthy and, and has the gene and so do I. So I more think unknowns. we just, we just really uncertainties. More unknowns. And I don't know how to kind of like articulate that it was just a real gut sense feel that, I think we'll be okay with Jack, but it did not remove the stress around what could happen. Because mm. you've already lived mm-hmm. it once. Mm. And it was sort of a really nice question from an obstetrician was she was like, think of it as if if you had another child on oxygen, could you as parents handle that responsibility? And at the end of the day, I think we could. If we had a baby on oxygen, we'd handle it. So that helped us as well. Yeah. But there could, again, there could be so many different levels of, you just don't know. Like the fact that you have no statistics, you don't know if it could be worse. Yes. We, we do know from some other studies and some other people in the Facebook group that um, Eve has got a really severe case of it, but more severe than her is like um death at birth really like within the first um 24 hours um and the fact that she got through that there was that possibility on the first night of her life when she was transferred by piper to the royal children's i remember a doctor called cedric was so stunning this doctor He came out and said, we're just going to take it hour by hour. She's really sick, um, but we're going to take it hour by hour. That's all he said. Um, Really reassuring. Like I don't, you know, when 
doctors don't say much, but they're in that, like they're so focused and reassuring. I felt really like he's, he's in control mm. and mm. she made it through. And that was, oh, that was a huge night. They really surprised everybody. You've said in the past that one of the things you found quite difficult is advocating for Eve without feeling like you're being crazy. And this is something I think all of us can relate to in this community. We'd love your thoughts on this. And if you have any moments in particular that come to mind or if it's just a day in, day out struggle Mm. for you. it's um, It's so hard in the beginning, especially when you're getting to know your baby. Um, I remember in the first NICU experience, I felt like Eve just wasn't my kid because everybody knew so much more about her condition, even just the language they used, um, like how to pick her up with cords, like how to feed her because she wasn't having a bottle. Everything about it felt so unfamiliar and that sense of detachment was really really difficult and I found in the beginning what was really helpful was to not expect the um probably not expect the medical person whoever it is to maybe say the if they were going for a ward round or something because we had a lot of those that they'd, they'd use language that was really unfamiliar to me so I would always start asking if they could say it again to help me understand Mm -hmm. in a way that would make sense to me and they might say it and then I'm like okay so can you say that again so we had this little three or four times in a ward round where it was a repetition of whatever it was um and then I'd kind of repeat it back to them and write it down and and that really helped me be able to then advocate for um because I had that better understanding and I think sometimes you can feel like you need to know everything with your kid before you're able to speak up to um, a doctor or a consultant um on their same sort of wavelength yeah level yeah um and it really really took like I it took a long time for me to even speak um, in that environment. So those little kind of opportunities wherever I could to ask people to repeat to repeat it until I was comfortable that I kind of could go away and say tell a friend what they said because sometimes in the moment you might understand but then you go kind of tell your partner what they said and you've, you're like, um, I forget <laughs> or I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really helpful. I think also as time went on and we got to know Eve and really understand what helped her and what didn't, um, I would generally communicate that to the nurses um, straight away and ask, kind of get them on side and ask them to be able to advocate for me as well in the times that I couldn't. Sometimes um, I'm trying to think of a good example in the ICU recently, things that would really, really upset Eve would be people coming into the room that didn't particularly need to be there, like um, a food tray coming in or the or the um, rubbish getting cleaned. 
Um, so we ended up kind of having a sign on her door saying, please don't come in or speak to the nurse beforehand. And it seems like a really little thing, but that really changed her day-to-day experience of not kind of escalating really quickly with someone unknown in. Mm. Um, and it kind of took quite a few people to interrupt the flow of the day for me to say, right, we're putting a sign on the door and that's it. And generally I've found in the beginning it might have felt like an us versus them versus me sort of mentality of medical versus parent. But as we went along this journey with a few more experiences, I found that they're really quite receptive of um, and even asked me, well, you're the parent, so what um, you know Eve best in terms of like what vein to do for her IV or um, what she likes to eat and those little things made us feel heaps more in control and kind of valued. Um, I think um, the advocating around the boundaries of, so day-to-day if it's not in a hospital, the boundaries around and expectations around your meeting up with friends and if they're unwell or family and if they're unwell and being able to kind of go to a park or a play date and notice somebody unwell and sort of just mention, look, this is not a safe place for Eve and turning around and going home. That took a long time for me to be able to do because I've, I just, part of it's like, you want to be there. You want to hang out with your friends Mm -hmm. and you want to show your kid off to, and let them experience that. But you know, kind of the fallout for that could be really quite dangerous. And there was the second guessing for me after being, say, around a park with a snotty kid and a coughing kid that may or may not be unwell, but you've seen it. So the second guessing of yourself for two days, three days after, checking them in the night, checking their sats, see if they're breathing okay, it just became too much and too anxiety-provoking. So I just practised before thinking about it, I'd just make a decision and just say, we've got to leave, we can't do this. Um, How does Eve mm. respond when you do that? When you say if you do um, see someone that's snotty or someone yeah. has shown up that is sick, then they said they weren't sick because they people do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, um, oh, I have to bribe her out of the situation because obviously like, she's getting older now yeah like. I mean it's not good like I would say like we're gonna go get a really fun ice cream or go to the cafe like you I mean you're taking yep. them out of a situation that's fun for them yeah <laughs> so you've got to replace mm. it with something else fun just safer so there's oh there's a lot of like treats <laughs> in the house and yeah too many you're so right though that it you get, I, I'm the same. I think I've gotten better at advocating for Jack in all aspects, like socially, medically, um, as time has gone on. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think it is just, you know, each experience you do tend to, I don't know, not just build confidence, but almost learn more about yourself and about them and feel more comfortable yeah. to say what you're feeling without being worried about the judgment or um, the repercussions of that. Like me recently, (laughs) literally just like pretty much saying, I don't want to talk to you anymore to a doctor. I would never have done that 
you know, when he was when yeah. he was a baby. Um at the start of like it. I had, yeah. yeah, I've kind of yeah, I've kind of got to a point now where I'm yeah. like, nah, I know best and you'll listen to me. <laughs> um not in a nasty way, but you know, like you do Mama Bear comes out. Yeah. It's you're just doing everything for them at the end of the day, aren't you? Like it's not you're not trying to be difficult or um and most of the time, like you said, people are receptive and understand, especially in social situations. Um, yeah. With Eve, do you find because she's got something visible that people are quite receptive because they can see that she's um you know, medically vulnerable. I don't know. It's just like sometimes mm. I know lots of people from our community say, oh, they feel like their kid looks so well so no one tends to understand that they're actually fragile. Um, do you find that, do people sort of steer clear of you sometimes? I have had a whole lot of different responses if I'm out with Eve. Um, often one might be that they think I've got her on a lead um, and they just, oh. I don't know why they think, like yeah. they don't connect that it's oxygen. <laughs> but she, yeah. Yeah, they genuinely think I've got her on a lead. Um, they, they, I, I find she, yeah, like I said, if you take Eve's oxygen prongs off, she would look normal and healthy and on a good day she acts very vibrant and healthy and happy. So, um we might have a conversation often at a park because people just love to ask, like, oh, is what is that? They say, is what is that? And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. it's oxygen. Um, and so is she, um, is she, uh, what, what's wrong with her? And we kind of may have a little dance around depending on how comfortable I am at that point or like (laughs) want to be answering those questions but it kind of um ends up with oh but she looks so well like Mm. um she should be fine type thing and sometimes I find that's quite it's um it's I mean it's encouraging that she looks so well but it's also pretty hurtful because it it's kind of brushing under the rug the severity of her condition and the fact that she looks so well because she is on oxygen 24 7 and she wouldn't look that good if she wasn't but yeah the fact that um it is visible I guess is a little bit easier to break that ice and that conversation about her medical needs whereas if you didn't have that on and you had um or if you didn't have anything visible and you were really struggling, it would be an extra kind of layer of questioning and kind of helping people understand what's going on with your little medically complex warrior. Yeah, I just find like if we, if I was to say, oh, I'm going to leave the, the park because Jack's vulnerable, they'd just yeah. look at this, yeah, crazy busy toddler running around enjoying yeah. life and almost be a bit like, uh, look at that overcautious mum. I think that's quite a feeling yeah. that a lot of our listeners have, um, you know, when they do advocate or, yeah, speak up about things like that. Have you found since COVID it's helped a bit? Mm, a little bit, a little bit with COVID. Um, yeah, I, for a, a point, while it now did. it's kind of going, I, I want to say it's we're going kind back to normal. Yeah. Going back. Yeah. Because I found... Um, So Eve's three, so all the birthday parties this year, Mm. um, 
often that would be one where I might um, like we've got one coming up on the weekend and it, we get the invitation with a note from the mum just something along the lines of like if you um, totally understand if you're not feeling comfortable coming at the moment kind of considering the climate of viruses around oh, that's so and I lovely. find like, yeah. gosh that is like the mo- nicest thing a friend can tell a medical mum is an invitation mm-hmm. with a caveat if you're not comfortable on the day if you if you're heading yeah. there but you want to turn around like anything like that it is the most encouraging, warming, loving thing you can do. Yeah, still um, be invited, but they understand, yeah. And acknowledging that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right, I think we're done. Unless you've got anything else to add, Georgie, anything else you would like to say or share? Let's see. I don't think so. I think you've done a beautiful job at covering it all. I often, I wonder what you guys feel to the response sometimes I get with like, um, like Eve would never have been given to you if you couldn't handle it. (laughs) That's my reaction to that. (laughs) There you go. Sorry. Oh, my God. No, often like, you know, God might not have given you these kids. God wouldn't have given you these kids if you couldn't handle it or something and I don't know I get this all yeah no I don't I can't no like that's a really weird thing well with me no yeah Mm. I think that's because I I just I love these little medically complex kids it's opened my world to or opened my eyes to a world of disability that I would never never have understood to tiny tiny little amount of um compassion or just what these families go for go through and the extended families and the impact on the siblings like raising a kid like this it's not just you that needs to do it it's your whole family and community and friends and I don't think it's possible Mm -hmm. to be able to sustain it by yourself and that's why things like this podcast and being able to um, kind of talk about your experience on whatever platform you have is so important because we need our friends Mm -hmm. we need our families and need our grandparents and support workers to help us make these little humans um, have the best life they can and they in turn make my life like the best yeah I just love it yeah absolutely. the only thing I'd change is if she could get better <laughs> yeah of but course. I know if she is always on oxygen she'll still be so inspiring to everybody she's just beautiful. you are inspiring I love seeing yeah, her she is inspiring up. you all like yeah and I feel like that I guess going back to that saying I feel like it yeah. almost once again downplays what you do every day because you're you know you're strong and you just manage with that and you got given this because you were strong and again it is it's downplaying all the stuff that you do every day and the fact that you don't have a choice but to do it Um, and like you said the 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 work and the effort and the support network that goes into even doing all of that stuff it just puts a downplay on yeah everything and makes it does it just makes you oh yeah okay I've got to man up and grit up and show up every day yeah. with a smile on my face and be brave and yeah, I don't know. It's 
it's again well-meaning and it does make us stronger and but it also doesn't mean our lives aren't just as bright and as happy and as joyful if if anything they're extra they're extra bright and extra joyful and these kids just bring a different perspective on life. I think it's sometimes people's inability to sit with something that's uncomfortable and maybe better might be to say you're doing a great job that that looks really hard like Mm. yep that because that's the truth it's not because you can handle it better than someone else it's just hard for you and it's hard for somebody else and just yeah being able to sit in that uncomfortable response is what we yeah. community our whole community needs to kind of be able to do better on a whole range of different topics but definitely one surrounding kids with complex needs that have no diagnosis or treatment and I think that's what they're trying to say as well almost like they couldn't comprehend doing all the stuff that we do and like it we 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 appear so strong from the outside um but like you said there might be a better way to say it yeah thank you so much for joining us Georgie I loved hearing your story and you guys are just amazing I'm just blown (laughs) away (laughs) we love following along yeah so thank you it's really great I will be checking out your new house Amy which with the shitty internet it will it'll get there if people want to follow you on instagram um where can they find you um so my instagram is art underscore with underscore georgie art with georgie um behind other than having a little medically complex kid i'm an art teacher so if you have any creative kids at home who want some online art lessons or little um, activities for kids Eve's age around two to three to four Um, I love popping them on my Instagram that's what you'll mostly see there and my kind of daily life with Eve and Jack and oxygen related things as well lovely thank you so much Georgie we'll speak to you soon bye Bye, guys